Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. So I'm interested off the bat, who in this room is like me in that you have a sibling who was born within, let's say, about a couple years uh, of you, or you have children, and at least a couple of them were born real close like that, like within a couple years. How many of you fit the bill there? A lot of you. Okay, so you know exactly what I mean when I say that when you have that situation, there is a built-in power struggle, is there not? Like when they're that close, I mean, you know, if, if there's a little bit more of a spread, like in with, with, with Wendy and I, our, our daughters, there's a little bit more of an age spread. And when that happens, there's almost like a sort of natural pecking order that sort of takes place. But when you're close in age, it's like there is this constant struggle for who's going to be boss between those siblings, Right. And so I and my middle brother had that. So you know, I'm quite a bit older than Stephen. I mean, I know I don't look any older than Stephen, and I appreciate that you said that. <laughs> nice of you to say that. Um, but, uh, but there is quite an age difference there. But between me and Jared, there's just a little less than two years uh, age difference. And so we did definitely get into uh, those power struggles. And if you just raised your hand a second ago, I'm betting that at some point in your history as a sibling or as a parent, you've heard that phrase, right? Who made you king, right? In our house, it was who died and made you king, right? Have you ever heard that before? Like you've heard, so, and, and, and it, it comes from this sort of sense of why are you trying to be an authority over me when you don't have any right to be an authority over me? And, and Jared and I would kind of get into that, and it would especially be bad if we were like cranky or tired or hungry. And I remember one specific time where, you know, all three of those were the case. We were, we were traveling. Uh, we were going to Michigan or Florida. I can't remember which one it was. Some preaching conference we were on our way to. We're in this tiny little Volvo uh, that, we, that, that we drove all over the country. We're in the back seat. My parents are, you know, in the front seat. And we get into one of those tiffs. I mean, we were, we were small. I don't remember how old we were, but we were in one of those tiffs. And, and I said to him, who made you king? And he said, who made you king? And we're going back and forth, you know, and arguing in the back of the car. And... Um, my dad turns and whispers something to my mom. Now, something about the way that kids hear, just in case, this is for free. This is <laughs> off script, you know. That uh, kids, if, if a mom or a dad is within a foot and a half of their child and with a full-throated voice, they say something like, clean your room. They can't hear that. They can't hear that. But if you whisper in a barely audible voice, something to your spouse that your children are not supposed to hear, they will hear every single word of that, right? My dad and my mom are in the front seat. My dad looks over at my mom, whispers something, and I always remember this. My dad said to my mom, he said, there's nothing more ironic than sitting in the back seat and arguing over who's in charge. And isn't it funny that culturally that is where we are? 
I think there's this sort of myth that our culture's bought into that somehow we're in charge enough that it's reasonable for us to be in a power struggle with each other over who's in charge. The truth is, that's one of the great things about being a believer in Jesus Christ is that we don't have to guess who's in charge. We know who's in charge. But still, we have these power struggles. I know this as a, as a marriage counselor. I've been doing uh, uh, marriage counseling here for oh, 11 years. Did you know that if you go back to Genesis and look at the curse that is pronounced uh, on, on uh, human beings as a result of the fall, the only part of the curse that relates to marriage is that there will be a power struggle. I mean, there's all kinds of things. That, I mean, because marriage brings with it all sorts of, of challenges. And so uh, God could have said any number of things about this is going to be the impact of sin on your marriage. But interestingly enough, the, the capstone, the major influence of the outcome of sin on marriage is a power struggle. We have power struggles at work. We have power struggles in the family. We have power struggles um, within even, fortunately, this doesn't happen at New Spring. And I'm so thankful for that. But I talk to pastors all the time for whom there are massive power struggles within their church. They use the word church politics for that, but you know what it is. What they're saying is that they have a power struggle within the church. And we're going to tap into this moment in the Christmas story that speaks to those of us in the room who might have, you might, you might be like me, you might just have a minuscule, tiny, small little issue with control. Because that's what I have. I'm very laid back and easygoing and very easy to get along with so long as the world cooperates with the way that I want the world to work. And so long as people do what I expect people to do, I'm very laid back as well. But if the world doesn't cooperate, if it doesn't operate the way that I want it to operate, and people don't do things the way that I want people to do things, then it is interesting how quickly I can go from good Jonathan to bad Jonathan and do things that are later embarrassing and frustrating and dig holes that I got to go fill in later. Is anybody here, can you relate to what I'm saying? It's interesting how sometimes when things don't go the way that we want them to go, the power struggle that we have, and this is what I really want you to be tapping into as we spend time together, in that moment, the power struggle that I have when the world doesn't work the way that I want it to, people don't do things the way that I want it to. The power struggle is no longer with another person. Now I'm in a power struggle with God. Because I'm saying, you know what? You are not handling this the way that I would handle this. So for those of us who have a little bit of a control problem, because a control problem at its core is a power struggle with the God of the universe, there is a part of the Christmas story that can sort of help us to realize maybe this is where I'm getting a little off track and maybe this is where I need to adjust a little bit. And the, the person in the story that we're going to be talking about today is King Herod. If you read in the Gospels and you get a little confused about Herod, I mean, Herod is, is uh, part of the Christmas story and then it says that Herod dies and the next thing you know, you're reading later on and there's Herod again. Well, there were multiple Herods. This is Herod the Great, Right? Uh, probably would have been far better to just say Herod the nutcase. I, I prefer to go with Herod the nutcase. Um, Herod the paranoid, whatever, you know, just whatever you want to go with. But Herod the Great is um, his historical name. 
And what I want to do, so, so this is kind of a flight plan for the message. We're going to look at the part of the Christmas story that involves Herod. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the kind of person that Herod was. And then we're going to ask ourselves maybe the most important question about Herod in the Christmas story. And maybe by doing that, um, we'll learn a little bit about relinquishing control, especially during this Christmas season. By the way, for those of us who are control freaks, myself first in line, is it not true that this is a difficult season sometimes? I mean, I love Thanksgiving and Christmas. That time of the year, I mean, I I don't do well with the short days. I don't do well with the cold temperatures. It's like during Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's like somehow I'm still floating on clouds. I just love this time of year. However, this time of year will trigger your control issues. Some of y'all in this room, you take your in-laws well in small doses. And you're getting ready to travel somewhere and you're going to get a double dose of in-law. Or your kids are now home, but they're not home long enough for you to change your schedule the way that you would do when it was summer. They're only home for a little while. So it's sort of, even though you love having them at home, you're trying to figure out your schedule and your normal routine is kind of upended a little bit. I'm just saying for those of you in the room who are like me and you're a little bit of a control freak, this time of year will bring it out, yeah? It'll bring it out. So we're gonna talk a little bit about this. Let's go to the story. This is in Matthew chapter two. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews. We read the Christmas story, or Linus reads the Christmas story, either way. Y'all don't even watch the Peanuts Christmas special? What's up with that? We'll come back to that another time. But um, You read the Christmas story, it's very easy to just fly past this part. But you have to understand how big a moment it was for these magi to ask, where is the person who's born king of the Jews? Because you need to understand that Herod's title is king of the Jews, but he was not born king of the Jews. He had been pronounced king of the Jews by Rome. Rome ruled the world at this point in time. And Caesar himself, in this big ceremony, pronounced Herod king of the Jews. Now, Herod was not a Jew by birth. He was an Idumean, but he had been raised a Jew. It was convenient for Rome. It worked out. This guy who seemed to be talented, a good leader, had been militarily successful, made sense to make this guy the king of the Jews. After all, he'd been raised in the Jewish religion. It made perfect sense. They they install him as king. And again, this is a time when, and we talked about this in the beginning of the series, Israel had been waiting for a long time for the Messiah. The Messiah hadn't shown up. They're under captivity more or less. Rome is ruling the world. Captivity might be a little bit of a stretch, but for sure, they're not self-managing. Rome is managing them. And so the king is not what they expected it to be. The the king is not someone appointed by God. The king is someone appointed by Rome. Here's Herod, and Herod knows that he is sitting on a throne that he has a dubious right to. It's not for sure that he should be on this throne. He just happens to be on this throne because Rome is there. And he understands that the Jewish culture does not consider him the be-all and end-all king. They really consider him the Roman substitute. And then you have these guys walk in. Keep in mind, 
Herod's been raised Jewish. He's heard all about the Messiah. This isn't news to him. They walk in and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Oh, that's a tense moment. Not only are they asking, where is the Christ child born? They're basically suggesting that his permanent replacement has arrived. If you knew Herod, you'd know that was a big problem because Herod's biggest fear in life was losing control. He didn't want to lose his right to the throne, and he had killed quite a few people to make sure that he could keep his right to the throne. So for someone to have a legitimate right to the throne, that would have been huge. I, I, I just think in my imagination, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but you know, you, you have Herod in his big palace. I can imagine there's all this noise and clanging dishes over here, making noise and people kind of muttering and talking lightly. So you just sort of hear that low muffle of noise. And I feel like when these guys walk in and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Can't you just imagine that suddenly that it just everything drops? And everybody looks over like, did they just say that? To Herod? No, they'd been asking around. The, the, the verb that's used here in the original text is a Greek verb that means continually. They had been continually asking. They'd been going all around Jerusalem. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? Where is he who's born king of the Jews? Because they figured that would be big news. Everybody would know. But nobody knew. They end up in Herod's palace. I don't know whether that's because they eventually just figured if anybody knows, the king will know. Frankly, if you want my opinion, my hunch is Herod got word that these guys were going around asking that question, and he went and had them grabbed by the collar and brought into his throne room so he could talk to them directly about this. Because the last thing he wanted was guys going around asking about where's the legitimate king. People start asking questions. He said, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Disturbed there is not an adequate word. In the Greek, it means to be agitated. It means to be deeply shaken. If I had gone before the service to the coffee shop and got a bottle of Coke and shaked it all the way from the coffee shop to this room, and as I bring it in, you see all that fizz just building up on the inside. That's what Herod was like on the inside. He was agitated. He was deeply shaken. He was very, very upset. The Bible says all Jerusalem was upset with him. Now, Jerusalem's upset for a different reason. I'm an organizational psychologist in addition to being a pastor. And in organizational psychology, we're very interested in the psychology of leadership. And we talk about what is called the Nixonian leader. Uh, if you're a fan of Nixon, don't let me offend you. I mean, I think he was probably a good guy in many ways. But... Uh, there's three qualities of the Nixonian leader. One is that they're not charismatic. Second, they're quite talented and they're prolific. They accomplish a lot of things and they're very talented. Um, and the third thing is they're paranoid. Those three things all together creates the model of the Nixonian leader. Herod is a textbook example. He's, we know from historians' writings, he wasn't terribly charismatic. People didn't just, they weren't magnetically drawn to him the way they were magnetically drawn to others. Nixon understood what that was like. All you have to do is watch a few minutes of the debate between Nixon and a young Jack Kennedy, and you get it, right? You get it that some people just have the presence and some people don't, um, and Herod just didn't have it. He didn't have the presence, but he was quite successful. He built all kinds of buildings. He, he created an infrastructure there. He created an arts community. He was very interested in athletics, and he was very interested in the Olympics. So he brought to the Jewish community a every five-year 
big competition athletic games thing that became a big deal. He was, he was building. By the time we get to the Christmas story, Herod's 70 years old. He's spent a lot of his life building up things within the Jewish culture. So he was prolific. He was talented, but he was also paranoid. And Jerusalem understood this. So they saw the good parts of, of Herod, but they also knew that anytime Herod became convinced somebody was out to get him or he was convinced that somebody was out to get his job, they knew he would flip out. So that's why Jerusalem's scared. When he called together all the people's chief priests uh, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Again, he knows about the Messiah. This is not news to him. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is the prophecy. Uh, it, you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And the reason he wants to know is because... Herod has become quite talented at putting out a hit on anybody that might be a threat to the throne. But he knows from putting out a hit that you have to know the demographics. Where is this person going to be? What do they look like? How old are they? Those are the kind of questions that people ask you if they're going to go out and take somebody out. So he knows he's got to figure all this out. So he's asking, when did the star appear? Because he wants to know how old this kid is going to be. Because when he sends people out to go find this kid and kill him, he's going to have to give them some details. Then he says, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. <clears throat> well, he's not going to worship him. He is going to try to take him out. And just to give you an idea of how Herod had done that in the past. Uh, and this is just an example. Herod, his ruthlessness is far greater than what I'm getting ready to show you, but this is an example. So Herod married a woman uh, called uh, Mariamne. I'm mispronouncing her name, I feel certain. Uh, but historians tell us, very interesting, that historians tell us that they had a passionate marriage early on. There was heat between them, maybe uh, more so than would have been typical at that time um, in, in culture, especially at a time when kings would have more than, uh, more than one spouse. Uh, and then uh, she had a brother named Aristobulus. Now, Aristobulus was looking for a job, and uh, Miriam Nay thought, well, if anybody can get him a job, Herod can. And Herod uh, got rid of the high priest and put her brother in as high priest. You know, he got an appointment through family. And so Aristobulus is the new high priest. The problem is, remember how I said Herod is not charismatic? Aristobulus is. Historians are quite clear about that. That he suddenly had, like everybody loved this guy. So whenever Herod is watching these religious ceremonies and noticing how the people were getting attached to Aristobulus, he said, this can't be good. And because he wasn't charismatic, he's feeling like I'm going to end up losing everybody to this guy. So he just puts out a hit on him and takes out Aristobulus. Now, what's interesting is he then pays for a ornate, elaborate, over-the-top funeral for this guy and weeps openly at the funeral. And historians over the years have said, well, obviously the weeping must have been fake because if you kill somebody and then you weep at their funeral, well, that's obviously fake. I would say criminal psychology would argue with that. I would say that truthfully, he probably did have a very conflicted amount, like his feelings were probably very conflicted about this. There was part of him that probably felt terrible over what he had done. And on the other hand, there's a part of him that probably felt like I did what I had to do to keep the wheels on, to keep control. Well, time goes on and he starts to be concerned that maybe his wife 
would try to take over the throne from him, so he has her killed. That's not good when you have your wife killed. It's like a whole reality television channel about that kind of thing. Um, and then just to make sure, for good measure, right, he has her mother killed and her grandfather killed. And I mentioned in-laws before, so just so we're clear, <laughs> the end of Christmas, they all need to be alive, right? Just double-checking. And then after that, the two sons that he has with his wife, he's concerned they'll try to take the throne away from him. He kills his own two sons to make sure that they don't try to take the throne away from him. And then later on, five days before his death, and it's clear to everyone that he's dying, he's worried that his other son is going to get the throne. He has his other son killed five days before his death. The guy was so non-charismatic and so paranoid that historians tell us this. Now, whether this is completely true or not, I don't know. But this is what historians say. They say that he was completely worried that when he died, nobody would grieve over his death. So what he did was he compiled a list of people who were beloved and influential in the Jewish culture, and he demanded that the day, the day of his death, those people would be gathered together and executed so that there would be weeping and mourning on the day of his death. Not for him, but he figured weeping and mourning, it counts anyway, you know? This is the kind of guy that we're dealing with. Well, we know the rest of the story. The Bible says, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared uh, to Joseph in a dream. Get up, go to Egypt with the child and his mother. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So for the person in the room who is the unbridled optimist who thinks maybe Herod really did want to worship him. No. No. He wanted to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until... Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, and he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. This is how messed up this dude is, that he is willing to send out soldiers to people's homes, and if there is a little boy in the home who's two years old or younger, He's totally cool with them killing that kid just to make sure that at 70, there is no threat to his throne. Control. It's a bad deal. And, and there is a sort, of, uh, a sort of cycle of control. That's what those of us in the mental health field, we're always thinking about what's the cycle? Because behaviors and thoughts, they do tend to approximate cycles. It's just something that kind of happens. So we tend to look for that. And there's one for control. I like to call it Herod's hamster wheel. You like that? That's a cool name, don't you think? Um, so Herod's hamster wheel, here's how it works. It always starts off with Herod thinking he's in control. That's the first problem with a control cycle is we come into it thinking that we are in control because life seems to be going okay. We have the impression that we actually are driving the car. This is going to date me. But do you remember the, the cars on the track at Joyland? How many of y'all remember Joyland in Wichita? Okay, well, at least we're, all right, there's several of you in the room or maybe at Six Flags or whatever, they would have these cars, and the cars would actually go along this metal track, right? And this, there were steering wheels in the car. There were two steering wheels. That should have been a first clue. <laughs> Anytime there's two steering wheels, logic, 
you know, should kick in there. But if you would ever like turn the steering wheel, there's no resistance, there's nothing going on there, it's not really doing anything, it's just, it, it's, it's just there to play around with. But as a kid, when you're little, you still think you're driving the car, right? That's the thing, you put a little kid in that car and they just gleefully drive and they think that they're driving the car, but they're not driving the car. That's the kind of control that we're in. That's the kind of control that we have, is that we, we think we're driving the car, but the truth is, we're not driving the car. But that's how the whole thing starts. And then something challenges our sense of control. It's gonna be, for some of us, it'll be a diagnosis. Up to that point, we will have felt like we were pretty much in control. And suddenly, we'll get that news from the doctor, and it will be this glaring sign that smacks us in the face that says, you are not in control, or you'll lose a job, even though you performed well at your work, even though you did everything right, you'll lose a job, and it is this huge message right in your face that you're not in control, or one of your kids will go off the rails, even though you did everything that you possibly could to raise them right, and you'll know you're not in control, or a virus will hit, and suddenly the entire United States and the world around us realizes that the world that we were used to in 2019 was not guaranteed to us in 2020. It reminds us that even though we think we're in control, we're not in control. Now, to have your sense of control challenged happens to everybody. But this next thing does not necessarily happen to everybody, and that is that Herod becomes agitated. When something messes with his sense of control, he becomes agitated. Now, if you know somebody in your life who is a almost pathological controller, so if you have somebody in your life who is, that is their personality, that is the way that they deal with the world, is that they are extremely controlling. Uh, so much so that they need to orchestrate every bit of what happens. They need to comment on everything that happens to let you know whether it's acceptable or not. They need to describe everything because in their mind, their perception of whatever it is is so important that the rest of the world needs to know that because their perception is the important one. That sort of sense of, of I must be in control, right? What you know about them, if you are a family member, if you've been around them for any point of time, you know that when something challenges their control, what do you do? I mean, you go into protect mode, don't you? Because you know that when that person's sense of control is challenged, everything is getting ready to explode. Mushroom cloud is getting ready to happen. They hit that mental panic switch and everything goes haywire. It's a, it's a, it is this transition from peace to panic to rage that happens, and that's what happens with Herod. He's agitated, he's deeply disturbed, he's shaken up. And then here's what he does. Because he has to do something, in that moment when a person who is a pathological controller, when something messes with their sense of control, almost always what they will do is they will, they will react to that and they'll try to destroy the problem. Whatever seems like the threat to their control, they will try to take it out. And they'll do that by taking destructive action. Maybe that's by some, somebody that you know, they may be emotionally destructive. So they, 
Um, they act out in a way that's harmful to others just in their demeanor and the way that they handle things. Other people, they, they're physically destructive, right? Physically abusive. Other people, they're destructive just because they uh, make bad choices that are going to have major consequences on down the road. But that's what he does. He, he acts destructively. And then this is the interesting bit on the upside of the cycle. He experiences these two emotions. I think I can make this point from what the historians tell us about the funerals of the people that he had executed. I think he experiences simultaneously regret and relief. But when a person is controlling, they have a weird kind of regret. It's a blaming regret. It is that sense that goes, gosh, I feel bad that they made me do that. I feel really bad that they put me in a position that I had to act that way. I feel bad that they made me raise my voice at them. I feel bad that they caused me to lose it like that. And yet there's the relief that says, but I showed them what's what. I regained control. I mean, I went through this this year. I had a situation come up. It agitated me, made me really upset. I set up a meeting with the person that had threatened my sense of control. And at first, I had every intention to handle the meeting in a professional, helpful, healthy way. And then, you know, I just realized that, that they were, you know, putting me in a position where I had to flip out. I didn't really have any choice. So I lost my temper in the meeting. I behaved destructively. And I walked out of the meeting going, you know what, I wouldn't have had to be like that if they had just done the right thing in the first place. But you know what, at least they know I'm not a pushover. At least they know what they're dealing with when they're dealing with me. That's the way that it works when we have a problem with control. But can I just show you something? Every revolution of the hamster wheel, you destroy something that's important. Destructiveness is part of every revolution of the hamster wheel. At some point, I'm ruining something that, here's the deal. The meeting that I just talked about, it's very clear in my memory. I don't look back at that and think, boy, I accomplished something. You get a little distance, you get a little time, you get a little space, and you know what you realize? Boy, I, I created some holes I'm going to have to fill in later. Man, I really dug myself a big trench there that I'm going to have to deal with later. And if you, have, if you can identify at all with what I'm saying, you, you know what that's like. You go on that cycle and you create a problem for yourself and you go, why do I do that? Oh, I do that because I felt like my sense of control was challenged, and then I tried to regain control. Man, why do I do that? I'm going to come back to that, but I told you that in this message I was going to ask maybe the most important question about Herod in the Christmas story, and we are at that point in the talk. And the question that I have is, why isn't Herod told not to be afraid? Do you notice there are a lot of people in the Christmas story who are disturbed? Most of them are told not to be afraid. Mary's disturbed. She's having a baby. She's never had sex with anybody. That, that'll shake you up a little bit. Angel comes and says, don't be afraid. Joseph is shaken up because his fiance is having a baby. It's not his. And the angel shows up and says, don't be afraid. The shepherds are really shaken up. If you memorized it in the KJV, it says they were sore afraid. I was in a cantata as a kid and quoting scripture 
uh, at the old church building. It was a Christmas cantata, and I said that the shepherds were sore and afraid. I thought that's what the Bible said. I figured they'd been walking a long way. They'd... Never mind. Angel shows up, don't be afraid. Herod's the only one who is shaken up, who doesn't get told not to be afraid. Why? Because he had a legitimate reason to be afraid. Everybody else didn't. He had a legitimate reason to be afraid. And I'm going to skip past some passages here because I just kind of walked us through that. But I, I, I want to try to make the, div 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 the divide here. Why should Herod have a reason to be afraid and these others didn't? It's because God was trying to do something. Mary and Joseph and the shepherds were to whatever level they understood God, because I think it was at a different level. I think Mary and Joseph had had a longer history with God and understood God better. I think the shepherds had not had very much exposure to this. But at whatever level they were at, they wanted to cooperate with what God was doing in this world and in their lives. Herod wanted to control what God was doing. See, Joseph and Mary and the shepherds, they were not in a power struggle with God. They were in surrender to God. It's a word that we use in church, but it's a good word. Surrender, in this case, doesn't mean surrender like we've had a battle and now I'm surrendering, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be the loser in this battle, I'm surrendering. No, in this case, surrender means a sort of relaxing into letting go and leaning back into what God is trying to do. It's saying, I'm surrendering. I'm not going to fight what God is trying to do in my life. And Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, they were in that position, so they had nothing to be afraid of. As a matter of fact, I would say that a person who is trying to cooperate with God should never be afraid. Is that not part of the message of the Christmas story? If I'm trying to cooperate with God, if I am willing to let go and lean into God, then even if I'm in situations in my life that threaten my sense of control, even when things would normally agitate me, I, I can say it is a season for me not to be afraid because even in the middle of this challenge, I know that God has got me. Herod, on the other hand, a person trying to control God always has something legitimate to fear. We have a culture where we want to put God in our breast pocket. And we want to walk around with God and make God be who we want to. By the way, this is one of the earmarks of a culture that is in trouble. The Bible says that a culture that is in trouble will make up foolish ideas of what God is like. So we, we create a God in our own image. We carry him around in our pocket. We, we trot him out at, at church services. We certainly dig through the drawer to find him when we have to go to a funeral and put him in our pocket and take him with us. But the rest of the time, it is, it is not that God is in control of our life. It is that we maintain control of God's influence in our life. Like we wanna make sure that we can open and shut that door as necessary. And a person who's gonna to try to control God's influence, they, they have something to be afraid of. L let me show you what I mean by that. When I get on an airplane, there's two kinds of seats, at least. There's the seat with leg room and the seat with no leg room. <clears throat> if I get on the plane and I, get on a, and I sit down in a passenger seat 
and I'm cooperating with where that plane is going and I let the pilot do his job, I have nothing to be afraid of. But if, on the other hand, I insist on being in the pilot's seat for the duration of that flight, I have something legitimate to be afraid of, and so does everybody else on that plane. <laughs> Did you notice the Bible said that Herod was afraid and everyone in Jerusalem with him? Why was everyone in Jerusalem afraid? Because they had seats on a plane that was piloted by a fruitcake. What does the Bible tell us? The Bible's saying, let God pilot the plane. Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Please, please listen to this if you don't get anything else. When do you lean? You lean when you lose your balance. See, a lot of people feel like if I'm a Christian, then I should never be off balance. I should never be disturbed. I should never be agitated. I should never feel that inner turmoil. If I'm a good Christian, if I have faith, and as a result, we become very hypercritical of our own faith. Why, why do I feel this way? No, actually, the Bible says in this world, you will have trouble. There will be plenty of things that knock you off balance. What makes the difference between someone who has nothing to fear and someone who has everything to fear is whether I lean into God in that moment of surrender and say, God, this is, this is difficult and I'm off balance, but I'm leaning into you, or whether I lean into Jonathan and say, you know what, it feels a lot safer to trust myself, so I'm gonna put myself in the pilot's seat. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your, your path straight. This word submit, the, the biblical language scholars have a hard time telling us exactly what it means. This is, this is the best word picture I can give you for it. If you've ever tutored somebody um, in, uh, uh, in algebra, say, and that, you know, that uh, kid is working on the algebra problem, they do a couple steps of the algebra problem, and then they look up at you like, did I get it right? And then you're like, yeah, 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 you got that right. Keep going. And they do a little bit more, and they look up. Did I get that right? No, 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 go back a step. Okay, they go back a step, and they do this, and they look back up. Did I get that right? That's what that means. If you, if you memorized it in a translation that says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, what it means is I take a step in my Christian walk, and then I look at God, and I say, did I get it right? And then I take another step. Did I get it right? You say, now, Jonathan, that's not practical because that's not real world. Well, let me tell you how it works in the real world. You take the scripture that God has given you, which is a mirror that tells us about ourself and tells us about God, and we look at the scripture, and as we do that, we meditate and we pray and say, God, am I doing it right? And the scripture will speak to your heart and tell you whether or not you're doing it right. And you can make those course adjustments, and you can surrender and lean into God because you can acknowledge him and submit to him a step at a time. That's what the Christian walk is all about. That's what discipleship is about, is taking those baby steps and then looking at the Father and say, Father, have I got it right? What should Herod have done? Three things. I'm, I'm just going to fly through these really quickly. The first thing is this. He should have realized God is not a threat to my throne. I need to vacate his throne. If I do get on a plane and I sit in the pilot's seat, you know the problem is that that is somebody else's seat. And as long as I'm sitting there, the pilot can't sit there. So I don't need to be insulted when God approaches to sit on his throne. I need to get up off of his throne and recognize that is not where I'm supposed to be. 
So I need to evaluate my life. So here's a practical action step. I need to evaluate my life and say, in what areas of my life am I sitting on the throne and it's time to get up off of that throne and let God get on that throne? Second thing is this, and I'm gonna fast forward here just for sake of time. The second thing is to realize I haven't been in control of this anyway. We go back to that thing with the cars, to recognize, to finally adopt an understanding that I haven't been in control anyway. Jesus asked people when he was teaching, he said, how many of y'all can add an inch to your height just by thinking about it? Now I would have preferred if he'd asked about how many y'all can add hair, because that would have been interesting to me, because I'd like to get some of this back. Um, What is he saying? He's saying, you need to reevaluate what you actually are in control of because it's a lot less than you think. It's a lot less than you think. And then the final thing is this decide to cooperate with what God is doing. When we had a more traditional church, there was something called the invitation. At the end of the service, they would sing a song. And there was a, an altar. And people would come forward and they would pray and they would make decisions. And we used to sing a song. The song was called, I Surrender All. And it went something like this, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Jesus I surrender, I surrender all. Why would we sing that at the end of the service? Because the most important decision that you will ever make is to lean back into the arms of the Savior and say, I give up trying to control something I was never in control of anyway. I give up sitting in a seat that's not mine. I give up trying to be the boss of me, trying to be the boss of everybody else. And I'm saying, God, you do this. I'm gonna sit in the passenger seat. You sit in the pilot seat. I surrender all. Father, thank you so much for the time that we've spent together this morning. We pray that as a group of God followers, we would surrender to you this morning, not in defeat, but in victory. We surrender in victory. That by leaning into you, we say, God has this. I'm a passenger and I have nothing to fear. Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to celebrate your birth as a family of faith. Help us to keep it at the forefront during all the festivities and the fun and the excitement. Help us to remember that the most fun and exciting thing in the world is the future that we have in you through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here this week. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.